Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, HCI Research Associate Dr. Leandra Hernandez and her colleagues continue their weekly COVID-19 convo via Facebook Live to discuss all things COVID-19 related. You know, I we've been sort of waiting for Andy to come back to talk about this issue of healthcare rationing, but it doesn't look like we're going to get Andy back. And that and a story dropped in the New Yorker um, this week um, that talks about how going back to the aughts, going back to like 2005, 2010, they were already preparing for pandemics, and they were already aware that there would be these critical shortages of ventilators, and there were already plans for how do you allocate resources in a low resource environment. And of course, the concept of triage is, goes back to the Napoleonic Wars, right? We, we've always, we've had that and that happens every time there's a mass casualty event. But this was very specifically about how you're going to allocate ventilators to people who need them. And uh, it's interesting, some of them, you know, kind of went toward a lottery and some states went toward, well, you know, we're going to look at, you know, all of the factors of, you know, whether someone can recover. And then there were some who had sort of exclusionary um, uh, aspects. So for Alabama, you know, uh, one of their qualifications was uh, if a person is severely mentally disabled, they don't yeah. get a ventilator. Yeah. Wow. I've been yeah. doing a lot of, um, reading for just in case that comes up here locally and yeah like those differential models so the one way they've looked at it is doing what's called an m sofa score which is sequential organ failure assessment mm -hmm. and so that's supposed to help mm -hmm. them determine how likely the ventilator would be to pull you through this right um, but then people talk about also another model you could use is long-term survival. Mm -hmm. But the the problem with long-term, uh, well, not long-term, well, yes, long-term prognosis. It depends how mm -hmm. you frame it. Because some models would say things like if people tie on their sequential organ failure score, then what do we do? Then we should look at long-term, and there's some models that said long-term frailty. Mm -hmm. And then there were people, myself included, that were like, oh, you cannot term it like that because there are many conditions I can think of, like cystic fibrosis in this example mm -hmm. comes to mind mm -hmm. as something that could indeed make you frail, but doesn't necessarily mean that your prognosis long-term if you're 15 with CF, like you have a pretty good long-term prognosis right now, but you are probably 
frail. And so Mm -hmm. there's been a lot of debate about the very minute semantics of how we frame that. The best ones I've seen, if there's a tie in the short-term prognosis, then say long-term prognosis only factors in if you have a some sort of comorbidity that limits your life to less than a year after yeah. this incident, mm. which you could say is still rather short term. Mm-hmm. Um, but then other things I've seen have been debates about, should we take age into account? I've right. seen so yeah. many debates that are like, well, if you have an 80 year old whose long-term and short-term prognosis is very good, then there's no reason to take age into account. Like the age should be like self, it kind of takes care of itself. Like if they have comorbidities that will show up on those two short and long-term prognostic Mm -hmm. indicators. But then other people are citing studies that show regression analyses, which are very powerful means of determining causality, like about the best we have saying that other factors accounted for age seems to be an indicator to this and we don't know why. So that including age isn't ageist, it's a clinical factor. Mm. And I don't know how to (laughs) respond to that. So in public health, we use these things called DALIs, disability adjusted life years, and then factors in like the amount of time people are living with some kind of morbidity, right? Some kind of like Thing that impacts their like daily ability to function, not necessarily like the way we think of disability, like to, like for mobility's sake, but just in general. So like I wonder if they're taking into account any of those. But then like looking at it from an age perspective, not to be ageist as somebody who is like rapidly becoming in that that age group, like aging into the age group where you're like, no, 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 but like let's think about it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like one of those things that health insurance companies make that decision all the time based on age. Like, are we going to see, and I hate this term, especially when we're talking about health and I don't agree with it at all, like that return on investment, right? Mm -hmm. Like the amount of money that we're putting into saving this person's life or prolonging this person's life, how much time do they have left and would they have left on like a normal life expectancy curve, which again, like I, all of it, like all of this feels like very, it's like very uncomfortable to think about it this way, but it's like one of those things that age does play into it a bit. And then if you're looking at the other underlying chronic conditions, which I think is where, why the age plays into it. Cause like from the aging process that we all start the moment we're born, we're all dying, right? Oh, I say that all the time to my students. We're all dying every day. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) right? From the moment you're born, you start dying. So it's like, fine. I mean, it's not really depressing, but it's one of those things that, you know, you're living longer, but you're having more years that you're living sicker or like less healthy, right? So like women live, traditionally speaking, longer, but we're living longer amounts of time unhealthily or like with compromised or reduced health, Mm. right? So yeah, because like women's life expectancy is always longer than men's. So it's like one of these things, is is it something that the body then could cope with after recovery from something like this? I love that Dally's thing. I hadn't heard of that. Yeah. Oh, it's huge, huge, huge in public health. D-A-L-Y. Yeah. Oh, I wrote it down. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Disability adjusted life years. No, there's apparently some, I mean, it's just one study and like back from my days as a statistician, you know, one study is only worth so much, but there is apparently one study that uses that regression analysis that said all other comorbidities accounted for year age just seems to be a factor in this. And so there's been a lot of debates 
But I think, I mean, if I had to weigh in on it, I'd probably say that's one study. We don't have a lot of data. We are accounting for age by allowing for comorbidities. And like, if you have a 70 year old that is just for whatever reason, healthier than a 30 year old. Yeah. Then I, I don't think we say like, well, the 70 year old age marker counts. Like, I think we should look at it objectively of health and life years, I guess. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, there's also been, you know, some suggestion that men are more susceptible. You know, do we start saying, well, between a man and a woman on a ventilator, right? I mean, it's it's a, I mean, that's a, it's another question. One is the question of cost of resources, but that question of cost when it's mapped onto you know, who's going to get the resources that, you know, if you, if you take this person off a ventilator, they will die. But if you don't take them off, this other person loses their chance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and the blanket DNRs, I just keep thinking about, um, Pamela, the discussion you had had about blanket DNRs and that you and I both saw, I hope I'm not telling tales out of school, but like, there was an MD that was like, that would never happen in America. And that scares me if we get to a resource allocation situation that there would be violent responses. If we have doctors that don't think things could get like that here. And, and as uh, like somebody who studies like social factors of health, I'm sure you guys would all agree. Like, I feel like if there's a party that's responsible for resource allocation, getting to a crisis standard, it's not the healthcare practitioners. It's not the ethicists. They're trying to do what they can with the situation that I think was handled poorly from an administrative level. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that people will see it that way on the ground, or I worry. I wonder, I mean, it, it's going back to the communication side of things. I mean, all of this feels very, just to me, just talking about it feels very dystopian, but to try to be a little bit more positive, um, I'm thinking about how people, I wonder as this progresses, whether um, people will voluntarily make some of those choices. Like yeah, I wonder people if are. with voluntary DNRs or people making more um, living wills and stuff and kind of- People um, absolutely are, yeah. Making yeah. their plans and mm -hmm. that might simplify some of this. I mean, not that it's, we're talking about crisis situations where it obviously goes beyond the ability to, to handle it all through voluntary mm -hmm. decision making. But I mean, I think a lot of times when people are given those, all of the information about what resuscitation looks like and what all of these things yeah. on a ventilator means, especially for people who are, you know, older, um, like 80 plus, 90 plus, they might feel they might have some input. <laughs> they might want to have some input into that process. I think it's something, so I have um, a medical directive and like a living will and all of that. So um, just in full disclosure, my father passed like three years ago. Um, so like very much saw firsthand, like those decisions that had to be made and he had all of that stuff in place. And then mm -hmm. after he died, it was like, oh, right. I should do that too. And it's like a very, surreal and uncomfortable thing to have to do, but I'm glad that I did it. And like, and I made them like when I was healthy and I was able to think about them, but it's like so many things go into it. It's like, it's even like the decision, like 
if you're experiencing pain, do you want them to withhold like aspirin or morphine or any kind of like painkiller, right? So it's like, it really is a, like a very standardized form. Like obviously it's like a legal form. Yeah. And there's like so many different parts of it that people just don't consider. Yeah. I think it's like kind of one of those things that, I mean, you can't force anybody to do anything. I'm certainly not advocating for like authoritarian kind of mm-hmm. movements towards this, but it's like one of those things that I don't know, should be included in, I don't, I don't know, like, I don't know, college or like retirements that like when you're setting those kinds of things up, yeah. there needs to be, generally in America, there needs to be this like approach towards how do we educate people on like all of these other life factors that nobody ever talks about, right? Because they're uncomfortable or because people don't have them. And it's like very much an intergenerational thing. Like I only have it because my dad had it. Mm-hmm. I only found out about it and thought about needing to do it because of this. And like it had come up in like, my education because I'm in public health, but mm-hmm. I was like, eh, that's a problem for like later and like healthcare decision making. Mm-hmm. You know, humans are not rational actors because if we were, we would make very different decisions. And we're really, really bad about thinking about our future selves. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like always, it's like, cause you're constantly playing against that counterfactual of like, well, what if it happens? Well, what if it doesn't, you know? And like this right. belief of like, I'm, I've always been healthy. So we'll always continue to be healthy, which is of course not ever going to be the case. Right. And very often people don't understand what it means to choose, for example, no extraordinary measures or you yeah. know, these levels of refusing treatment. I remember many years ago, I was quite young and you know, my my good friend's grandmother, you know, was deep in Alzheimer's and, you know, not doing well and in a care home and not very happy about it. And so um so my friend's mother had said, okay, we're refusing treatment. Well, then suddenly her grandmother gets a terrible uh, urinary tract infection mm. and is in a lot of pain, a lot of discomfort, a lot of misery. Um, but it, you know, when it's a matter of just like, oh, I could just give you an antibiotic and that would go right. away. Like right. that is not how she pictured <laughs> the refusal of heroic measures, right? Yeah. Um, and so I was actually- about it. I was actually going to mention, I had a friend, I'll just say, I don't want to give away the relationship too much, but where this happened, they got a UTI and then they also got colitis Mm -hmm. and they didn't have any advanced orders, but they decided to refuse antibiotics Mm -hmm. in that moment. And it was really distressing for everyone. And in the end, though, like I did some reading about it and how that is not a part of, you know, no extraordinary measures that we think about, but it is a part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it just actually really got to me because, as as you know, Pamela, like my whole forthcoming book is about the fact that if we sacrifice everything to just stay alive, then we've probably lost an essential part of our personhood. Mm-hmm. And yet here yeah. I was watching this friend make this decision. And I was like, I was like, let me at the ethicist. Like, I want to talk to them. <laughs> she needs to have antibiotics. Like, but she was living the truth that I've spent 10 years writing, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. because with writing about the Victorian era, I write about bacterial infections. Like it just, but I never seen it played out. And so like, I was able eventually to find that to be a very brave thing. Um, it's a little bit different than your friend because she did decide in that right. moment, no, yeah. I don't want antibiotics. 
Um, but it's just, you know, that just spoke to me that like, we really don't think about infectious disease in America as often as we think about things like cancers and autoimmune disorders. Right. We will now. <laughs> I always say that if I was going to go back and do a second PhD, which will never happen, I think there's something distinctly American in our like, probably it comes from like our legacy of colonialism where we have used virus and pathogens and ill health as a way to dominate and subjugate other like native populations. And I think that's something that's really unique. In the I'm writing an article about that right now. <laughs> for American literature actually. Huh. Yeah. So I think there's that whereas like we see like in Europe, they have the common experiences of like the bubonic plague and all of that, that like have drawn together like the social contract a bit more tightly for like America and yeah. our like individual, like rugged, rugged individualism, right? Like the Marlboro man and all of that is just like, it's, it's just not part of our culture. And I'm, or well, or we've forgotten a good bit of our culture, right? Because I'm down right. in the south where yellow fever like massacred tons of Europeans. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm actually, yeah, I'm writing about that right now for American literature, which I guess I've just like networked really well recently with Americanists who focus on germ theory. Mm -hmm. Not, I'm currently debating how to make this work for my CV. Anyway, regardless, <laughs> um, that's exactly what I'm writing about is like comparing the British versus the American uses of germ theory and reception of germ theory. And my conclusion has been that the two cultures are united through um, what I'm calling necro-capitalism, like a, a way of exploiting human labor mm -hmm. that is intimately wrapped up with microbial pathogens pathway through our environment, but that mm -hmm. the American individualism gave it a specific brand mm -hmm. of like, I don't know that there's like a little bit more of a loss of community than you even see with like colonial Britain. Mm. Current oh, struggle is I thought it was a 9,000 word article. And I realized that it was a 3,000 word article when I was 3,000 words into a 9,000 word article. So anyway. It's going to be another article. It's going to find another time. <laughs> yeah. It's a series. It's a three part series. <laughs> <laughs> there, was a, there was a really great article in Jacobin maybe two weeks ago that talked about, so disclaimer for anyone who's watching, it's um, a socialist democratic publication. So definitely there's some bias there, but they were talking about the foundation of the NHS in Britain and how like this is a unique moment in American history where we can learn from that because the, the two kind of backgrounds, like cultural, socio-political backgrounds are really similar because with the bombing, like in World War II, they didn't know where bombs were gonna fall, who was gonna be affected. And so everyone was like at equal risk, very much the same way we're seeing with the virus right now, where like it's hitting wealthy people and lower socioeconomic, like people with lower socioeconomic status and all of this. And it's like this unique moment that we have, like if we could come together and just be like, well, we're all humans, we're all Americans, like this could lead to this formation is like complete and total revolution of the American insurance system. And yet I fear that the the very unequal death tolls in different communities is gonna militate against that to somewhat. I yeah, mean, well, I mean, structural racism and healthcare redlining has always existed and yes, the system is effectively and efficiently, but yeah. not the way you want it to. It's interesting. I mean, you were saying that, you know, we, we don't, think of, of infectious disease as the threat that, you know, 
I mean, I remember the AIDS epidemic right. and right. it's a different kind of infectious disease. And there's a perfect example of something that was associated with particular communities and therefore considered not to rise to the level of national concern um, by then President Reagan. Um, but also it, because it wasn't sudden, right? It was much, it was devastating. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't something that you got sick, you know, two weeks after you'd been exposed and then you were dead within two weeks, right? It was this thing that unfolded, which of course made it much more dangerous because there were so many opportunities to spread it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there was no kind of national mobilization for a long time. Right. Uh, in the same way. And I think that, you know, it's interesting that I think we, we often kind of tend to forget AIDS is a major epidemic, mm -hmm. in part because it doesn't have that signature of people getting sick and dying in very short uh, periods of time. Right? I wasn't able to share this, the whatever the other, was it last week that I couldn't get my mic to work? But one of my favorite articles ever is by Claire Hooker and a few other people. Then she says that like in a weird way, when we label something an epidemic, we're labeling it something that we want to mobilize public health activity mm -hmm. towards. But when we label something endemic, like you could make the argument that particularly in the 80s, 90s, HIV was considered like endemic to the homosexual population, mm -hmm. that that enables us to just ignore it. It's sort of a justification for saying like, well, that group just has this infection. Um, but I was going to ask Mary Beck to weigh in on this because her dissertation was on HIV. So oh, wow. I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts. One of these things that we've always seen is like whenever there's a marginalized community and this time it's like around like the religious right being like, oh, well, like the LGBT community is something we definitely want to keep suppressed and like they're othering them because of their like social factors mm -hmm. and like their social behaviors. I think that's another way, as long as you can other them and you only see the numbers occurring kind of like endemically, like Kari was saying in these communities, it's a way of being like, well, we're safe because we're good and we're moral, right? So there's always that encoding of morality that happens. Um, and I think that's obviously something that's like particularly different with this virus because it's, it's spreading wildly and widely and it doesn't, it's not keeping up with those like social norms and things like that. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, I think it's wherever you can demonize somebody, you, you will. And I think we are seeing it like a little bit with the, the coronavirus, like the demonizing and like othering of Asian Americans or Asian oh. individuals, obviously, right? Um, but I always say like the thing that has to happen for somebody to care about a public health issue is that it has to affect them. And mm -hmm. it's really easy when it's not happening in your communities to be like, well, I'm safe because I'm not part of those communities. And we don't have that protection with this. And then like also particular to HIV, the infectiousness factor, the R not is really low. Like it's mm -hmm. like HIV is not actually an that very infectious yeah. level of disease. But the R not factor with COVID-19 is like, it's really high so we're seeing more and more people being affected and things like that so yeah i, I, had, we didn't I know what the or not for aids was <laughs> when we were you know in the early days of the disease That's true there was no idea of how rapidly yeah. it was spreading because yeah. it was a long latency period 
But and right. the, the, pro, the progression of the disease in a body also depends like how healthy a person was with their CD4 count, the viral load, all of that was. And if, you know, mm -hmm. there are some like long-term survivors that they're studying now that were, um, were infected with HIV like back in the early 90s, like late 80s, early 90s, and before there was medication and their their bodies were just resilient and they don't know why that is, if, they were, if there was something about their genetic makeup that helped mm -hmm. or healthier, but like why they survived and why other people didn't. Well, I, I address this a bit in my book, like, because I deal with a different, Mary Beck, you wouldn't know this, Pamela and Chen do, but I deal with a different um, pathogen in each chapter. And one thing I teach my students a lot is like the biological manifestation of a pathogen absolutely impacts how society deals with it. So for instance, like TB is similar to HIV. It's a very weak pathogen. It You kind of have to be immunocompromised to really get it easily. It has a super long latency period. And so even though the bacteria for it was discovered in the 1880s, people were still debating into the 1920s if it was like maybe still genetic. Like it's yeah. so weirdly like germ theory didn't cling to it the way it did with everything else. Whereas like you take the measles or smallpox that it's just, or black plague is one I usually use as an example. Mm -hmm. Germ theory wasn't the first idea of contagion. I mean, like you're living through the Black Plague and it's just really obvious, you know, that like you hang out with Sam and Sam has oozing buboes and then like a day later you get the, like, it's just obvious. And I think sometimes those cultural mythos and like marginalizing prejudices can spring up over diseases that are less visually obvious to us, like HIV and TB, because we're trying to fill in that gap. HIV was so associated with Kaposi's sarcoma um, in the early days. It was like that was the sign. Was yeah. you know that was like the the sign of the leper was the the, the visible sarcomas on the face and on the torso. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. That's how with the MMWR report from the CDC, um, they were like, we're seeing this like resurgence so this like really really rare cancer at prevalent levels that we had never seen before, and that but then led them to do the background research into like, what is what is the underlying health cause here? It's like, we don't see Carposi sarcoma. They're super rare. Mm -hmm. um, mm. Yeah. I was having this really interesting discussion with one of my students after class yesterday. And she's like, you know, I'm like thinking about like the recovery and like when we're gonna be able to like resume some kind of like normal life. And she's like, you know, like part of me wonders like, in this time that we're waiting for a vaccine, is that going to happen? Like, what if this virus isn't receptive to vaccines? Like, what if we can't make a vaccine for it? Like, we can't with HIV and stuff like that. Just like, you know, but if you've had it and we can then have herd immunity and if you can't be reinfected, like, is it better than just to, like go out and get the virus and then you'll be safe and then we can kind of return back to normal? And I was like, it reminded me of these things that used to happen like when I was a child. The chicken pox parties? pox right like because we didn't have, i was like yeah you know like when i was a kid we didn't have vaccine for the chicken pox so like whenever one kid was sick like the parents would be like go play with these kids like and it was, like, it was like yeah so it's like an interesting thing it's like you know we don't know if the virus works that way or, or things like that yet yeah. so, like, no and also <laughs> want to overwhelm the healthcare system but like 
it is interesting that we're seeing these like kind of narratives like well what if a vaccine doesn't work or can't be developed you know? and of course your parents didn't think oh i'm giving my kid shingles in her old age when they did that right <laughs> right they're like we're actually preventing you know some right yeah. Right. I mean, the problem with that, that with this whole notion of herd immunity is, first of all, we don't know how much immunity it grants yeah. this disease. And secondly, the sequelae that are starting to emerge from this disease are I really scary. I saw that thing posted the other day. We're I read that. Like, yeah, we seem to be seeing, I mean, it's very preliminary because we're only now starting to see the survivors. But, you know, we were worried about ventilators. Now we have to worry about dialysis because so many people have kidney failure from this. Yeah. Okay. I did not see that in this article. So, yeah. So now there's a, there's a shortage of dialysis supplies and this is emerging as a, as a serious, you know, and it's uh, again, because we know so little, we don't know like who gets these kinds of sequelae, what kinds of things lead you to get these. And, and plenty of people who've rode this out at home and survived are gonna find out in, over the next few months whether they're gonna to start to have heart issues or kidney issues or liver yeah. issues or, or brain issues. People are reporting cognitive stuff. Yeah, and we also don't have enough tests to know, like we still don't have enough diagnostic tests and we don't have enough serologic tests to know who has the antibodies to know if they've had it and just been asymptomatic or like low level sick. So it's like, yeah. I don't, yeah. Is there a precedent, Mary Beck, for like, because I was reading some of that stuff and I mean, we don't have data. We just have yeah. anecdotes and, and mm -hmm. we all know that there can be issues with self-report anecdote things. Mm -hmm. um, and so just reading through these, I mean, I just kept wondering, and Mary Beck, you would be, I, I think, the person who might know the most. Is there a precedent for coronaviruses to cause things like cognitive long-term cognitive and organ impacts or do we know that just seems very foreign to me yeah i don't know i mean like we could look back at like the sars and the mers data and see long term but like again those are only like a few years old so like we know like the immediate effects and like i guess the short to maybe intermediate term effects but like we don't actually know like the long-term effects yeah. of any things like so or even things like the zika virus right like we don't know the actual long term until people have lived long enough, have recovered and like live long enough for us to follow them up over time. So I imagine we'll see like a lot of funding for like cohort studies and things like that. Mm. It'll be really interesting, like people who are diagnosed and then either were staying at home or got treatment in a hospital and then people who were exposed and then obviously developed symptoms and then didn't go to the hospital because they were just like, oh, it's like a cold or it's like, I just don't feel or they could, Or they couldn't get into the hospital they and hospital the hospital. stay home, we can't test you, which has happened yeah. to them. So, and like there might be different outcomes, long-term, short-term outcomes for people who had more severe cases and people who had less mm -hmm. severe cases. And it's like one of those things that like we just, we know what we don't know. <laughs> know it until enough time has passed and there's just really like there's nothing we can do this is a rumsfeld moment there are known knowns there are unknown unknowns, unknown knowns. <laughs> yeah so yeah it's like I one of the things don't understand but it's like if the data doesn't exist the data doesn't exist and you i know you can't and we're not used to that in america like we're yeah. just especially i don't know america but like our internet culture like i'm used to mm -hmm. being able to google like Right. Are there day owls? Like I Google <laughs> everything I want. There's no yeah. unknowns. And so to suddenly be entered into a world where we can't just like have the answer at our fingertips, I think is very 
different for people. Mm-hmm. And I think like- and Unfortunately, people are finding answers at their fingertips, which are not the right ones. I'm sorry, Mary Beth. No, I was gonna say, like, it's interesting. Like we know what we know, and then we know what we don't know. And I can take comfort in that, but the, the whole wide part of the middle, like of the, we think we know this, but we were not sure. That's right. the most uncomfortable place to live. Like the, the oh, yeah. brought in on your shoes, it can like mm-hmm. spread 16 feet and you're like, but why? Yeah, so like all of this, like we think we know, but is yeah. the most terrifying. Right. Um, I wanted to make sure we got, we have one comment in oh. the chat um, from my lovely husband who is one of our devoted fans and watches every week. <laughs> Um, something I've noticed is more of a laser focus of how many things we touch every minute of every day that others have touched. I'm going to let everyone else answer this because he and I are the only people we have to talk to most of the day. <laughs> so we just don't want to hear from me anymore. Jen, yeah. it's, it's making me think of um, TV Gung Choi has a, an article, I think it was in ELH or novel or something, I can't remember. Um, it's about contagion in Bleak House. Um, mm-hmm. And she's talking about the way that, like just thinking about contagion elevates the importance of the everyday or the mundane. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that once, once contagion can spread through all of these different vectors, then suddenly everything could be important, right? Like, was it the pen that you signed with at the at the store was it the you know like doorknobs the railings the mail suddenly all of these like the minutiae of everyday life comes into hyper focus and it, it's sort of i it's making me i'm definitely feeling that and i'm feeling a little bit of a level of like interpretive Overstimulation or something <laughs> could be important. Then how do I know what what I'm supposed to pay attention to? And right, um, right, like all of those discussions about you know food and groceries and takeout and is it safe and is it not safe? And my neighborhood board is alive with people commenting on the people who are working in the grocery store because we still have people working without masks and gloves in the deli section for example. So people are getting their lunch meat yeah, and then, or not getting their lunch meat um, and then, and then making that assessment. But yeah, absolutely. And of course, you know, this is a cliche now, but I am hyper aware of how I'm always, always, always touching my face, yeah. <laughs> especially in allergy season. It's like just constant. Right. Now that you said it, I feel like I need to touch my face. <laughs> <laughs> I have two cats and a dog and they're all over the place. There's cat hair on my face all the time. (laughs) And one of my cats basically is a dog. Like he rolls in the dirt and then comes in and rolls on my bed. I'm like, no, dude, you're supposed to be rude. rude, I think there's like a couple of things. I think so much of the language that we use to talk about health is encoded in like things that are clean versus unclean, right? Mm-hmm. There's this very much like thing like, well, cleanliness is next to godliness. Yeah. So right. We're like this idea that like, if we can just we can clean our way out of it, which I understand because people, yeah. there's so much unknown that people want to be able to do something to help, right? So mm-hmm. that's just cleaning of groceries and, and products that come into the house from the outside. 
it makes sense. It makes people feel better. And I'm one of those people, like, if it makes you feel better, do it. Right. Unless it's, like, actually contraindicated, like, yeah. for it. Um, but I think there's this idea of, like, well, if I if I clean well enough, I won't get it. And that proves that I'm good somehow. Right. right. Oh, right. That's so <laughs> Victorian. So there's things like that. And then there's this really great article by Elliot Frieden that talks about the difference between disease versus illness. So like disease is like the pathogen that you have. And then illness is like your subjective interpretation of it. And I think people don't want to make or are concerned about like the cognitive dissonance that it would take to move from that. Like, what does it mean if I am a person that it has COVID-19, right? right? How do I feel about it? How do I now feel about myself? How are other people going to feel about me as somebody who has been diagnosed? Like, it's how do I feel about infecting my partner? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or it's like, and you just think about your diagnosis like very differently. Like when I am I like you know like when I'm out and about and I'm coughing and I'm like oh I just like it's just allergies it's just something like that. Right. But if I was to go have a doctor be like, no no Mary Beck you have a diagnosis of like the flu or something like that, I would then feel very differently and it would affect my behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. So I think there's also again this like fear that maybe ties into like the economic uncertainties that's happening too is like if i just keep myself and my things clean and i prevent transmission mm -hmm. then i can be one of those people that goes back earlier right and I, so i just it's a lot of things all right so this is embarrassing to admit but um, <laughs> you know i used to compulsively wash my hands and one of the ways that i back that was when there was the whole reaction against antibacterials mm -hmm. saying, so, you know, you're destroying yeah. the microbiome on your skin. You're actually creating disease by over cleaning and over cleansing. And I was like, you know, yeah, I need to, you know, and it so irritates my skin. So I was like, water is enough most of the time. <laughs> and now I'm like, oh, you know, I would give anything to have those old, slightly OCD habits mm -hmm. that I used to, that I, that Since I used to. Since you admitted it, I will admit too, that I actually, <laughs> as a young child, had pretty classic pediatric OCD with hand washing. Mm -hmm. And like back in the nineties, they were just like, they took me to my pediatrician and the pediatrician was like, don't wash your hands. It's fine. You're not gonna <laughs> die. <laughs> and like that was my treatment and so like as a very young child I was taught to like not fear germs and that's how they like broke me of my OCD and like I have really bad hand hygiene and I've had to like develop new patterns I wasn't gonna say it but since like one of the most respected Victorianists in the field said it I can get away with it <laughs> like I always say like I'm a very bad public health professional like I mean I wash my hands and like especially during like cold and flu season I'll do like the full alphabet wash and things like that and like because it really it's like super effective right it's low intensity super effective and it's effective but um I'm, I don't wash like my groceries from the grocery store. Like I'll rinse the apple the same way I used to before. I don't wash, like wash down the bags. I'll wash my hands after I come in. I'll like wipe down my phone and stuff like that. But I'm not one of the people that's doing the obsessive, like I'm gonna leave this box out in the sun. I mean, I also live in Brooklyn, so I, I can't. <laughs> I'm not leaving my box out in the sun for like three days to like yeah. be exposed. And like, I think it'll be okay. Like. I'm, you know, I'm trying not to touch my face. Wearing the makeup that I wear is protective because I'm, I've been, I've trained myself. Like if you touch the face, you're gonna mess up your mascara. It's true. I'm putting on so much more eye makeup now. So I was like pretty good about that. But yeah, it's like one of those things. I, 
I'm not following the like super strict or I'm not allowing myself to go that way. Because it's like, you know, yeah. basic hand washing is fine. Just like if you break down the fatty layer around the virus, it's gonna it's gonna just like be exposed to the air and then it'll die and be fine. And so far it's worked, but <laughs> I also could just be about busy, who knows? <laughs> yeah. I think it would be different if if, you know, Perhaps if one were, were in the epicenter, if you were in Manhattan right now and you're sharing a building with hundreds of people and you know that there's a lot of infection around you, you might be more, might be thinking, gosh, you know, the amount of viral load around here might yeah. make you more, more cautious of those things. Well, and like when I use the elevator in my building to like go out or I use the commute, because I live in a big, like a big apartment, big-ish apartment building. I like tuck my hand up in it. Mm -hmm. um, and like, I've also been trained like, I do, I used to do like HIV counseling and testing. So I'm also like very trained about like how to wear gloves, how to take them off, how to open doors, mm -hmm. like with your elbows, so you didn't have to clean right. up again. Um, so it's one of those things I'm like, oh, this comes in handy. But yeah, I mean like, yeah, I, I think like now, oh, how many people are touching that elevator button? Like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The whole like geography of what is pure and polluted to use that sort of classic yeah. opposition yeah. has really changed. And you know what what I used to think of as just you know either neutral or maybe dirty, but not in a scary way, is now like I recoil from it. Yeah, I mean, I've been taking the subway since like well before March thirteenth. Mm. Um, because my job like pretty quickly, they were pretty quickly like, ah, no, we're going to. Like online teaching and it's like oh okay like mm -hmm. i can't imagine like touching like a subway pole or anything um, <laughs> i'm like oh i'm never no. gonna we i go to london pretty regularly for research and i know pamela you do too and like so that's where i get most of my public transport experience and i never i just i don't think about germs that much like i'm not scared of them yeah but now i'm like i'm never gonna think of the subway the same way ever well, think of all the essential workers in you know in new york who are getting on that subway in queens and riding 40 minutes to get to work and they don't have a choice yeah. It is what it is. Um, but I mean, I've seen pictures in, you know, just like 50 people in a car, like strap hanging. Oh, 50 people would be so few people. It would feel like <laughs> well, I'm guessing. You know, it's like, it's like, it's like, I always make the joke, like, you know, in New York, we're just, we come into contact with people very differently. I was like, you know, somebody's hanging onto the strap and like you're tucked up into their armpit and like, you're just excited that you got on the train and didn't have to wait for the next one. Mm -hmm. So like our idea of personal space is very different. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. Alter that sense of space for those spaces, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, I remember traveling in Japan many, many years ago, and they really did like push you. Yeah. When you couldn't get yourself any further in, they would pack you <laughs> in um, to get you on the train. And, you know, I mean, you would never be that close to a stranger on the street. Ever, yeah. But you know, it's it's sort of like when you're in an elevator and everybody just faces forward and pretends they're not six inches away from each other. It's you know, yeah. it's the it's the yeah. etiquette of the space. It'll be interesting <laughs> how it changes public spaces like that. Cause like um, a lot of my research is in France, so I'm in Paris a lot. So a lot of the metro there is um, fabric covers for their seats. Mm -hmm. I know it's the same way in the tube as well. And it's just like I always kind of thought it was kind of gross, but now I have like I think after this I'm gonna be like, oh. <laughs> New York it was like the hard plastic that you could wipe down and sanitize. Yeah. Like, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. 
Oh, okay. thank you. Well, with that <laughs> spot, we're at 45 minutes, which, by the way, it's our one month anniversary of COVID combo. Wow. Well, we've Less been for a while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That's that's both wonderful and sad. Well, <laughs> we all took a minute to take that in. Yeah. Well, we're all still here, so yeah, yeah that's something to celebrate. <laughs> it is a nice. I thought of how you said that last week, like a grounding point to my week, where it, like I said, yeah. I loved the first four weeks of quarantine. Like I was happier than I've been in a long time, and then like <laughs> right at week four, I was like, I have organized what there is to organize. I have written the things I have to write, like, and so it was nice. <laughs> it's been nice this week to be like, okay, it's Thursday. Like, I made it here. It marks the week. Chat with some people in my field, and I'm concerned about how it's going to feel like over the summer. For I mean, we're still going to be doing some kind of social distancing, I think. Yeah, like what's it going to feel like over the summer? Like when you want to be out and you want to be social because the weather is so beautiful, and then if there is a second wave in the fall, like. Yeah, I think that really hit me today. That was uh, just thinking, wow, this is this is going to be a while. Like, I have to stop thinking in the temporary and start yeah. thinking more long term. And I'm trying, yeah, I'm trying not to think about it being that way in the fall. I call that my dark line timeline. Yeah, like, my yeah. students were just talking about that in our last class meeting. They were feeling really stressed about the idea of us not potentially not going back to campus in the fall if yeah. that happens and mine asked me every single session like have you heard anything and I was like no yeah. <laughs> I, was <Nope>. like, <laughs> I was like often they send you the emails and then they'll send us the email that's like oh by the way yeah. um, so I was like no I was like and you you hear all the interesting rumors so like <laughs> what are you yeah <laughs> yeah I love how they think like the professors are like privileged employees I get tons of information about how the university works yeah it's true. I, I often learn how the university uh, what decision they've made by reading the local paper I get that before I get a memo from the university <laughs> that's how that's the alligator is reporting <laughs> that's how we all at Kent State found out that we had we were going to online classes oh my god wow so wow. I think that was a that was a mistake, an accidental pressing of publish before they had were ready to. I think they meant to let us know first. Good. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what they told right, us guys. the first time. And then by the second time, I was like, you keep making yeah. that. <laughs> an error. All right, guys. I should turn this off so that, as I say, y'all will keep doing this and not feel like it was too exhausting. Um, Mary Beck, you are welcome back any week. Yeah, like, I mean, I always appreciate it. my Thursday, and this was very lovely. So if you'll have yeah, me, yeah, meet you. you. Yeah, yeah I'd love to have you any week. It's always this time on Thursdays. I just okay. shoot the link. I'll add you to our group chat if you want. So that's where yeah, I put the link. Lovely. And, yeah, it was awesome. so lovely to meet new people. Good to see you guys. You too. Bye. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.